0: So the Nationwide Marathon is about six weeks away, and I know this because some of you are doing it. You're actually running in this thing, uh, wondering perhaps why and what you got yourself into. And then there's others of you I know personally that are blissfully not running this thing. But for those uh, those of you who are, you probably know that the last five miles are thought to be the hardest. If you are not careful, it's when you just shut down. So you'll hear runners say, I hit the wall on mile 23. I was at a good pace. And then my my favorite is I bonked. Did anybody use that word before? I bonked. I bonked at mile 25. Sports nutritionists call it, what do they call it? They call it glycogen depletion. Runners call it getting bonked. Okay? So I have a new word for ministry burnout now. It's called ministry uh, bonkedness. Okay? So what happens is carbs, they act like gas in your tank. And once you burn the glycogen from the carbs, once you hit that glycogen depletion, uh, your body just stops. It's not fatigue. It's total shutdown. You hit a wall, you bonk. Ever since I learned that to follow Jesus is to be on mission with Jesus. Let me say it again. Ever since I learned that to follow Jesus is to be on mission with Jesus. Circa 2002. I've been running at a pretty good pace. If I'm honest, pretty pleased with my pace. But I've watched people who started the race before me start to hit the wall. And years ago, I thought that would never be me. But now I know better. Now I know better. See, we accept that hitting the wall happens in races. We accept that hitting the wall happens at work. Some of you have bonked at work. Amen? Anyone? Uh, We all accept that in those spheres, but why are we so hesitant and so skittish to admit that it can happen on mission with Jesus? But it does. Ministry burnout does happen. I'm not just talking about pastors or missionaries. I say ministry burnout. And when I say that, I am referring to every follower of Jesus. The scriptures call you ministers of the gospel. Last week I shared, um, or I'm sorry, last week, yeah, I shared how last year for our church was a sprint. And this after about six years of a good pace so if we are not careful this is the mile we bonk right now which is why i'm so glad we're exploring this book nehemiah because this book shows an unflinching even uncomfortable look at a burnt out people of god so remember just to Just to uh, remind ourselves of where we're at in the story of God's history here. Uh, Israel had been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Pulled away from home. In judgment for their rebellion. And their stiff-neckedness. And then God calls them back to participate in his renewal project. And over the course of around a century... Of time, first led by a man named Zerubbabel and then a man named Ezra. In the course of almost a hundred years, they get off to a great pace. But we learn in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, that this remnant people is now in great trouble and shame. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, what we just read, we hear two summary words from Nehemiah about the condition of God's people in this renewal project. And what are those words? Trouble, which in the Hebrew could be translated evil, and derision. Trouble and derision. In chapter 1, verse 3, shame. Shame. I always wondered why Nehemiah was so secretive when he arrived. If he got such a green light from God, if he got such a green light from the king of Assyria, then why on earth is he so secretive when he arrives to Jerusalem? You see it in verse 12 and in verse 16. He arrives, he, he sort of stays there for three days, verse 11 says, and then he goes, and he goes in nighttime. He only takes a few people with him, and then he says, I had no one except the animal that I sat on and rode. And then later he, he says in, in verse 16. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, or He just is completely under the radar. Why? It's such a mystery to me, but now I understand it. God's people were burnt out. And Nehemiah had this vision of renewal and he was wise. He was emotionally with it because he knew if he just came as an outsider and just laid out this grand renewal vision They would kick him out. They would say, who are you? You have no idea where we are and how discouraged we are. Here was the problem for them. There was good work to be done. The word work and the word good work is littered throughout the passage we just read. You can find it for yourself. There is good work work to be done. But they hit a wall. And that's our problem. We're not building a city with bricks. We're not building a wall with bricks. No. But the scriptures do tell us. In light of Jesus' finished work. We are building a church with spiritual bricks. And so the question before us this morning is this. How can we rise up. When we are spiritually tapped out. We know it's possible. Because in verse 18. Of chapter 2. We see it happen. And they said. Let us rise up. And build. What enables a burnt out people. To say that. I don't want to be simplistic, but I see two patterns emerging in our section this morning. Two factors at work in renewing a tapped out people. And the first is vision from God. And the second is validation from God. Vision and validation. Let's take a look at each in turn. So first vision from God. Nehemiah knows that a burnt out people will not be renewed without a vision. And not just any vision, a vision from God. What is a vision? A vision is a picture of the future with two components. Number one, a vision is a picture of the future that is rooted in the present reality. Nehemiah arrives with a vision. Verse 12. What God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Do you see it? Verse 12. He has a vision. It was put into his heart from God. It's a vision from God. Okay. But as we said, he doesn't just show up and unload every detail of this vision of this future picture. He needs to first get rooted in the present reality. And so he settles in, as we heard, and he gets rooted into the issues, into the problem. He wants to see firsthand. And so he settles in, he goes out with just a few, and then by night to inspect the walls. And here, if we were with them, and this might be helpful as you, as you continue to study Nehemiah with me, if you were with them, we might see something like this. So first, up behind me is a picture of modern-day uh, Jerusalem. If you look closely, you'll see dotted lines. These dotted lines were placed there to help us imagine what the ancient wall structure, what the ancient Jerusalem would have looked like in Nehemiah's day. And so archaeologists would sort of construct this kind of image. And so here is the list of the gates. So Nehemiah, as we say, it starts at the, what's it called? The valley gate. And so if you were with Nehemiah, you would see him begin right about here. And he goes south to the Dung Gate. And it's called the Dung Gate for a reason. (laughs) Sort of Israel's portipide. And then as he... Hung around and started going north, right around the artificial pool. He says that he couldn't get on his horse anymore. There's too much rubble. It was too ragged. And so he got off of his animal and he started walking. And he started walking further north towards the Watergate, which does not involve Nixon. <laughs> Bad joke, sorry. <laughs> this is why I don't tell jokes when I <laughs> preach. Okay, so then he turns around, the scripture says, and he walks back up again toward the valley gate, where he enters into the gate, and there he resumes his, uh, not resumes, but there he concludes his journey. Why does he spend time doing this? He knows two things. That a vision for the future has to be rooted in the present problem. It has to be realistically rooted in the present problem. And secondly, and this is where Nehemiah is just kind of a brilliant person. He honors their struggle so that when he casts visions finally in in chapter in verse 17, do you notice he says, we, 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 not you, you, you. He can say we because he's anchored himself down. He's shown his commitment. He's not just somebody who came out of nowhere with a grand vision. So a vision is a picture of the future that's anchored in the present reality. But secondly, it's this, and this is hugely important. A vision that will sort of wake us up like smelling salt out of our burnt outness is a picture of the future that produces passion. And not just any kind of passion. A passion for God's fame. My favorite definition for vision, and you can use this at work, and you can use this at home, is a picture of the future that produces passion. A picture of the future that produces passion. And that is exactly what happens in verse 18. And I told them, Of the hand of my God that had been on me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. That is the second great miracle in the book of Nehemiah. The first is that he didn't get killed by the king when he showed his sadness. And the second is that these burnout people actually stood up and said, let's do this. But well, what compelled them? He didn't say, "Hey y'all, you guys are in shame." He didn't say, "Hey, uh, we are embarrassed as a people." No. Instead, he he points to God's fame. He points to God's reputation. Nehemiah is connected to God's reputation. If you think about it, what so often fuels our ministry, our own personal ministries, our own personal walk with Jesus, or even our involvement at church? So often, it's other people's opinion. Like our parents' opinion of us. We're involved in a church and that makes them feel good, I know, and so so we just we're that type of person who goes to church. It could be success. I mean, in the pastor world, the idea of ministry success is is like a toxic drug. And that can drive a whole lifetime of ministry. Is a love for success. And of course, we define what success is according to us and not God. It could be past guilt, something in your track history, where you're, your track record, where you're just like, I need to now just sort of make up for that with church attendance and with ministry. It could be a longing for safety. It could be so many things. So often these things fuel our ministry That will not sustain a lifetime of ministry. You will burn out. What will? Only one thing. I'm going to boil it down. There's one thing that will sustain a lifetime of ministry: it's a passion for God's reputation, His fame. His glory has to outweigh everything, every motivation in your life. This is the heartbeat of Scripture. Just <coughs> listen to these Scriptures. This is Psalm 79, nine. The psalmist says, help us, O God of our salvation. Why? Why? Why help us for the glory of your name? Help us, save us, show up in power, deliver us, atone for our sins. Why? Why? For his namesake, for his glory, for his reputation, that he would be famous, not us. Or in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 14, 20 says, Lord, we confess our wickedness and that of our ancestors too. We have all sinned against you. And now he says in verse 21, for the sake of your reputation, God, not ours, yours, do not abandon us. So there's a cry that God would not abandon us, not for us really, but for His name and His reputation. And Nehemiah knew that this city, His name was all over it. His reputation was all over it. At that point in God's redemptive history, this was His reputation. So Nehemiah says, there is disgrace. And what are the nations thinking about our God? And that alone makes a burnout people stand up. Nothing else will. Nothing else will. God's fame, God's glory, God's reputation has to be the fuel for your ministry. And renewal will only happen when He gives us that gift. I want you to listen to this parable for a minute in your mind's eye picture this and I'm quoting one day a traveler walking along a lane came across three stone cutters working in a quarry each was busy cutting a block of stone interested to find out what they were working on he asked the first stone cutter what he was doing the first stone cutter says I'm cutting a stone Got that guy in your head? Okay. Still no wiser, the traveler turned to the second stone cutter and asked him what he was doing. I am cutting this block of stone to make sure that it's square and its dimensions are uniform so that it will fit exactly in its place in a wall. Bit closer to finding out what the stonecutters were working on, but still unclear, the traveler turned to the third stonecutter. She seemed to be the happiest of the three, and when asked what she was doing, she replied, I am building a cathedral. For you to make it, In this exhausting race. It is literally life or death for you. To connect your present ministry. To God's future vision. And I have to be honest. Of those three. I really resonate with number one. What are you doing? I'm cutting rock. And you think about your ministry, you think about your ministry to your children, if you have children, to your spouse, if you're married, at school, if you're going to school, kids, to the friends that you have at school. You think about all these things in your life and you're asked, what are you doing? The answer you give most often, let's be honest, is I'm cutting a stone. I'm just getting the kids out of the door. I'm just trying to like, make it to the end of the day. Or some of us, perhaps we're a little bit better. We think a little bit further in advance and and we connect what we're doing on a day-in-day basis to something a little bit bigger. But I would say hardly any of us connect our day-to-day with God's future, final, new heavens, new earth renewal of all things. And I would suggest to you that if we started doing that, we would see the renewal happen from the inside out of our very existence. So think of this, just a few things. I want us to move beyond the day-to-day with your kids. And I want you to picture your kids as 90-year-olds. 90, not nine, 90. And then I would encourage you to think of your children standing before the very face of Jesus. In glory. Okay. Do the same if you're married with your spouse. Move beyond the day to day with your marriage. And now picture your spouse in his or her future glory. Do it now. Do it now. Or this, move beyond the day to day with your job or your studies. And picture this world broken and destroyed and racked with injustice as it is. Picture this very world cleansed and renewed and rebuilt by King Jesus. And we are in our resurrection bodies. Whatever illness that we are racked with, whatever disease we are confronted with, whatever it is that we are grieving, wherever the tears are coming from, on that day those tears will be wiped away. Think of that day and now consider your day-to-day things in light of that future trajectory. Wow. I mean, if you're at work, maybe say this question. Lord, how is what I'm doing today helping furnish the new heavens and new earth? We need a vision from God or we will burn out. Second thing we see, though, and this is brief, is a validation from God. See, we need the vision, but in the midst of the sort of the day in, day out, we we need validation, don't we? (laughs) That we're walking in the right direction, that God is behind us. And of course, we see that in Nehemiah's story. So we need validation from God. It is one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to get validation of that vision along the way. And so Nehemiah points out two sources of divine validation in his life. And I encourage you to use them in your own life. And they are these. Number one, God's providential hand. We need to get good at spotting his providential hand. We need to get good at it. It's like, it's like working out. Okay, We need to work on it. It's like any skill, any craft. We need to set ourselves to it. Spotting the providential hand of God. And number two, resting, leaning, claiming his promises. Those two things will help help us along the way. So first is providential hand. Nehemiah says in verse 18, yeah, I've got a vision, but look at how God's hand is at work. The king, believe it or not, didn't kill me. And then he sent me, and we read about it, with his army. Which is this huge validation. I mean, he's walking into enemy territory, as it were. And he has the army, the king's army behind him. And he shares that with, with, the, with his Israelites. And they see it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, God has green lighted this. Something is going on. You see, see, Nehemiah made use of God's providential hand. He told stories. True stories. He's validating the vision. And then Nehemiah also knows how to lean into God's promises. We saw him praying his promises in chapter 1. And now we see him sort of leaning on them in the face of persecution. The very last section of our passage is a foreshadowing of this massive opposition effort that will take place when Nehemiah and his people start to build. And it's led by these three figures. Sandy the governor, Toby the aristocrat, and Geshem the gang leader. And that's exactly what they are. And they exist in real history. So I was almost going to throw up on the, on the screen uh, these, ancient, uh, these ancient bowls with their names and these ancient fragments with their names. These aren't made-up figures. And so what we have in this trinity, this sort of anti-trinity of opposition, is legal opposition with the governor, financial opposition with the aristocrat, and cultural influence with Geshem. And to this trinity of opposition, which I'm sure you probably are feeling to this day in one or all of those areas, what does Nehemiah present? An alternative trinity. He says, you have no portion, number one, Right, number two, claim, number three. Nehemiah leans into the promises of God, and it gives him a confidence in the face of opposition. It's a validation, yet again, and we need this validation. God gives it in these two forms, providence and promise. And so let's celebrate these validations in our life. So what that means is that we need to waste time, and I mean that, we need to waste time sharing stories of grace renewal. If you've been around Josie and I long enough, and if you've been in any kind of meeting, it's a ministry meeting, you know that we try to start every single meeting with grace renewal stories. We challenge each other to think about the given week. Where have you seen God's hand at work in renewal? And for many times, it's hard. It's really hard to find that hand. And that's okay. That's okay. But we need to get skilled in telling and in sharing and in celebrating stories of renewal. That'll help us along the way. So what did we discover this morning? Renewal happens through prayer, chapter one, risk. first part of chapter 2 and the today we see that it happens through vision happens through vision a validated vision but vision we need to connect our lives to the total renewal that jesus is bringing if you are running the marathon, I have a tip, and I'm not saying this from experience. Maybe, Brian, you could share this from experience. Bring some glucose gels. Am I right? Some glucose gels? Those help. But you can't take them when you're burned out. That's what I've heard. Again, this is all hearsay. Am I right? Anybody can confirm? Like, get that fuel early into you before the burnout happens. And friends, I just am here to say, I think, I think the reason God has placed Nehemiah into our laps is because he is giving us renewal today before we balk before we burn out and if you are burned out just know this i don't judge you jesus doesn't judge you you're firmly in his grip and he stands to renew you there is a way out let's pray Lord, we are grateful for this text, we're grateful for this book, we're grateful for this chapter and your story of renewal. Would you orient us into this chapter? Would we live out of uh, what Nehemiah teaches us? But Lord, not without you, Jesus. Because when you came, you finished the work that Nehemiah started. And So we lean into you, Jesus. We lean into the vision of what you're doing to restore all things. We're glad that you stop along the way to validate your church. And in a minute, Lord, as we go to your Lord's Supper, we will see that as a major pit stop, a major water station almost in this marathon of faith. For you will restore us. You will inject into us the fuel that we need to press on. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.